Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the earth and the heaven and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and our ability to gather freely and study it. Please be with Pastor Rick as he brings us a message you have given to him for us, and also open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to take in what you have in, for us to learn through this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I hold here a precious commodity known as a chocolate truffle. Traditionally, a chocolate truffle is made from a chocolate ganache center covered with chocolate. Or, for some of us, we prefer our truffles filled with almonds, or peanuts, or coconut, or cherries, or caramel, otherwise known as caramel. So whatever you choose, you can have a truffle however you want it, filled with whatever it is that you desire for your truffle to be filled with. And usually we would choose something yummy inside said truffle. Well, years ago, I was a college and singles pastor at another church, and the day came when it was uh, time for me to move on, and God called me to go and serve at another church. And so uh, as we were leaving, me and Jamie would decide to have one last party with everyone in our ministry, the college and singles group, and we had them over to the house. And part of the, the shindig, me and Jamie just had this idea. It's like we want to make our own truffles to share with everyone that, that comes over to the house to enjoy this like celebratory goodbye type party. And what we decided, though, was to have a little bit of fun with the truffles. We made some really good, yummy truffles. Some were filled with peanut butter and oatmeal, which sounds really good because peanut butter goes with chocolate really well. However, we decided that some of the truffles would be filled with tuna fish and mayo. Yeah, right? Like, that just sounds lovely. And we made the truffles, and I should say, for the record, Jamie made them. Not, not me. It was actually Jamie who made the truffles, and so she filled them the way we had talked about, and we put them on a platter, and you could not tell the difference between the peanut butter truffles and the tuna truffles. There was no way to discern. If you didn't know, I just knew where they were on the platter, so there they go. And so here come the kids, right, the college kids and the singles guys and girls, and they're coming into the house, and, and they go over to the table where all the appetizers and the food are, and people, they, start, they go straight for the truffles, right, because the truffles are the good stuff. And so they start getting the truffles with the first four or five people. Bless their heart. They got the good stuff. They got the good ones. And they're, oh, this is wonderful. This is yummy. And they're eating them up. Well, here comes the poor soul who, not knowing any better, is the very first one. And he reaches into the platter and he grabs the truffle, expecting joy and delight. And what he experienced was drastically different than what he was expecting. I could really, I could still see the look on his face. It was a combination of sadness and horror. <laughs> I, he really had an existential crisis in that moment. Everything he knew about the world collapsed and imploded in that moment. Like, it was almost as if he relived 
like what it was like to find out that Santa wasn't real. Like in that moment, everything, everything just got messed up in his world. So question, does it matter what you fill a truffle with? Does it matter what you fill the chocolate with? You better believe it matters. It matters a lot, and it's true for us. It's the same for us. What we're filled with makes all the difference in the world. What we're filled with kind of gives us our own personal flavor in life. What we're filled with will completely determine how you live, how you act, how you react, how you carry yourself. But it doesn't just affect you. What you're filled with doesn't just affect you. It affects the people around you. What we are filled with is ultimately what we fill others with. Is that not true? What you yourself are filled with is what you, in essence, will fill other people with. So if you are an angry parent, guess what you're going to fill your kids with? Anger. If you're a negative spouse, guess what you're going to fill your spouse with? A heck of a lot of negativity. If you're a, a boss, if you're like a boss that's given over to a lot of anxiety and worry and stress, guess what you're going to fill those who work underneath you with? A lot of anxiety, worry, and stress. We will always multiply or reproduce in other people that which is inside of us. What we're filled with will always come out and affect other people, and we will in turn fill other with that which fills us. So what you're filled with does matter. It matters tremendously. So with that, I do want us all to turn to the book of Acts. If you haven't done so already, to the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the Gospel of John, so book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, specifically chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And we're going to continue this morning to work our way through the book of Acts here. Um, and what we've been doing for, for the last several little bit here is that we are, we're, we're breaking down the series into, into three series. So this whole study through the first part of the book of Acts, we're breaking into three different series in which we highlight or emphasize three different themes or mega themes that are in the specific, specific sections of the scripture here. So the first theme that we covered was together. So we looked in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 that the early Christians were always together. Always together. We, we read that they were devoted to doing life together. And there is just a, a principle and a truth that we all need to take to heart. And that is that God calls us out of darkness. He calls us out of individualism, hyper-individualism, and calls us into community. So, so we, we have this tendency always like, I want to be alone, do my thing, take care of number one. It's just about me. That, that's, we're wired by our sin that way. God draws us out of this radical individualism and into something greater and most beautiful, covenant community, God's people, one people together. So we saw that in the first few chapters there, that we're to, to be an active part of a church family and enjoying all the blessings and privileges that come as a result. Then we covered a second theme, in the name, the name of Jesus. So we saw in Acts chapter 3 into Acts chapter 4, the middle of Acts 4, we saw that everything that the early Christians did was in the name of Jesus. So what that means is to live in the name of Jesus is to live as a representative of Jesus in this world. It means that we are his spokespeople in this world, that he is the light of the world, and then we shine his light. That's what it means to live in the name of Jesus. So we are not only saved by the name of Jesus, we're saved by the name of Jesus in order to live in the name of Jesus. And you see that. that that's how the, this like ragtag group of, of a few Christians back in the day, they led a movement that changed the world because they were always together and they were doing everything in the name of Christ. So today we start a new theme, and that is filled. Filled. And what we're going to see today and over the next few weeks is that it really does matter what we are filled with on the inside. It, it, what we allow to fill our hearts drastically and dramatically affects every part of our life, and ultimately it spills out. 
What goes in ultimately overflows out one way or the other. So if we're filled with lust and pride and selfishness and jealousy and gossip and anger and hatred and malice, if we're just filled with that, guess what's coming out? Lust and malice and anger and pride and all that stuff is all going to come out. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14 tells us, the backslider in heart, a.k.a. the sinner who has given themselves over to sin, right? We're all sinners, but the person who just willingly, wantonly gives themselves over to it, they neglect the fact that there's a sin, they actually want to do it, so they backslide into it, they live it out habitually. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. So in other words, what we sow in our heart is what we reap in our life. Wrong begets wrong. But if you sow godliness, if you sow Christ, if you sow uh, the ways of God and the things of God into your heart and your mind, guess what's going to come out? Goodness is what's going to come out. It's going to ooze out all over the place if that's the case. So what we are filled with on the inside will ultimately characterize your outside. What you're harboring inside will always come out and characterize your outside. So we have a choice. What kind of truffle do you want to be? You want to be a truffle filled with nasty meat? (laughs) Like a Hot Pocket? Which to some people might be yummy, right? So I got one, someone nodding in the back. like, well, that's actually kind of good. But a Hot Pocket is nothing but a Pop-Tart filled with nasty meat. We know this, right? <laughs> so you have a choice. You want to be a truffle filled with tuna fish. That's not right. That's not good. That's not tasty. Or do you want to be a truffle that's filled with goodness? And, I mean, this really kind of hits some of us, like, square between the, the eyes or in the heart. Because a lot of us are thinking, um, I've got a past. Uh, I'm filled with a bunch of stuff and sin and baggage and failure and bad decisions. And my life is all kinds of jacked up. It's filled with a lot of stuff. Well, I'm here to tell you the good news is that no matter what your life may have been filled with in the past, there is hope. It can actually be replaced and filled with some good stuff. It can be filled with Christ and grace and love and mercy and wisdom and optimism and and hope and security and joy, all of that. And, And I hope that we would all run to Christ so that our lives may be filled with the right stuff. And there's two reasons why we should. One, for our own good. It's for our own spiritual health. That I want to be filled with the right things in order for my life to head in the right direction. I want to be filled with right things in order that I may sow and reap goodness in my life. But not only for my own sake, but for the sake of others. Because what I'm filled with is ultimately what I fill others with. So for the sake of me and for the sake of my loved ones and my family and my neighbors and my coworkers, for everyone, let us be filled with the good things for our sake, our health, and their good, and ultimately for the glory of God. So with that, we'll just go ahead and get into our story here. Um, I, got, I do have to back up a little bit. We really are in the midst of a really long story. So I got to back up a little bit. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they go to the temple. They come across this dude that's lame. He's been lame since birth for over 40 years. And so Peter looks at the guy, and in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says to him, In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Rise and walk. And just like that, instantly, miraculously, this guy who's never walked in his life stands up. It actually says he jumps up, and he starts running around praising Jesus. Well, that causes a bit of a commotion at the temple. And all the people, some people saw it. People were like, what's going on? And people are gathering. This large group gathers. They're astonished at the miracle that just took place. And what does Peter do? He takes advantage. He takes full advantage of what has happened in order to point people to Jesus. He takes advantage of this to let everyone know without any doubt that it is Jesus Christ who has healed this man of his defect, of his birth defect. 
And some of the people in the crowd, they see what happens. They're hearing Peter's words, and some of the people come to faith. They, they come, they're converted. They become followers of Jesus. But unfortunately, some people not so much. Some people are haters, and they reject what they've seen. They reject what they hear, and it's namely the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and those guys. The same ones that not so long ago were the, were the ones that wanted Jesus dead and had Jesus killed. Those guys. They're rejecting everything that's happening. So what they do is that they have Peter and John arrested. They hold them overnight. And the next day, they interrogate them. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, it says, By what power or by what name did you do this? So these chief leaders, religious leaders, what, what are you doing? Whose behalf are you speaking on? How were you able to do this? And in that moment, Peter, without hesitation, he basically John waned up. If you're old enough, he John waned up. In that moment, without hesitation, he gave the greatest Sunday school answer in biblical history. He basically said, Jesus. Like, in whose name and whose power did you do this? Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer, and it's, it's always right nine out of ten times. Right? So here you go. He gives an answer, and it's, this is as bold as it possibly gets. He looks the men in the eye who just had Jesus killed and says to them, Oh, it was Jesus who healed this guy. And not only that, that Jesus that healed this guy is also the Messiah. He goes on to share that with them. And he then piles on. Not only did Jesus heal the guy, and not only is Jesus the Messiah, the one that God promised throughout the old, what we call the Old Testament, promised to come to deliver us from our sins, save us out of our plight, and restore the universe to its rightful like order. You killed him. He, tell, he calls them murderers. It's what he does. I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty risky because you got to understand that this is the establishment of the day. Talk about needing to drain a swamp, right? Like they needed to drain that swamp back in the day. Jesus will take care of that in due time. But anyway, they're the establishment of the day. And they got, they, they got rid of Jesus because Jesus threatened the status quo. Jesus threatened their power and their status. Well, so did John and Peter here. So they actually want to get rid of John and Peter here. The same thing. But right now, they really can't. And the reason why is that there's this big crowd running around praising God for what took place. So they're like, you know what? If we do anything to these two guys, we might actually create a riot a rebellion of some sort. So you know what? Instead of actually doing something, we're going to send them off, send them off with a threat. Basically, they say, stop what you're doing because you're about to ruin the image and the style that we're used to. Like right there, they go all digital underground on them. They, they offer an empty threat. Stop what you're doing or else, or else something is about to take place and you're not going to like it. And this is exactly, this is precisely where we pick up the story uh, today. And what I want us to see, what is it that made Peter and John and the early church, what is it that made them so spiritually healthy? What is it that made them so spiritually powerful? What is it that, that made them so gospel effective, so bold? What is it that made them able to just get it done for Jesus in, in their life? And it comes really down to one thing. It comes down to what it is that they were filled with. Their success as followers of Jesus is all based upon what it is that they were filled with. And the first thing that I want us to see here is that they were filled with right relationships. Look at verse 23. It says, when they were released, so they had been arrested, and when they were released, when the chief priests let them go, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And the word their friends is really interesting. The, the ESV, the English Standard Version, uses the word friends there. It means close companions. It means close acquaintance, more than acquaintances, but a, a close supportive community, a spiritual community. So the first thing that Peter and John do after their arrest and after their release is that they go and share their experience with those that they're sharing their life with. 
they share what's happening in their life with their church family, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. The reason they're just so bold and so passionate and just living out their faith is because they enjoyed close friendships with fellow believers. It's the first thing they had close, loving uh, friends that were fellow believers. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that they were devoted to fellowship. You know, and in, in our 21st century English, the word fellowship just means something not necessarily biblical. When we hear the word fellowship, for us, it means hangout. It really is what it means. Like, it's some kind of Christian social soiree. Like, that's what it means to fellowship. Well, that's not really what the biblical word fellowship means. The word means to partake of a meaningful relationship with a fellow brother or sister in Christ for the, ex for the express purpose of building our faith up. That's Christian fellowship. That's true friendship. When we help each other to grow in our faith, that's true friendship. The kind of friendship that fills us and fuels us to grow as love-filled faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus, folks, that is true Christian friendship. Now, we got to be a little bit careful, don't we? Because there are a lot of folks running around claiming to be our friends. Well, just maybe, just maybe they're not our friends, or at least maybe we can't really qualify them as Christian friends or good Christian friends, because there's at least two different kinds of, I would say, impostures or posers running around. The first are the yes men or yes women. Like, there's people that kind of just agree with us, no matter what it is that is going on. Those who take our side, no matter what actually is happening. You know what I'm saying? Yes men. So, for instance, I go up to you and you say, can you believe so-and-so is mad at me? And can you believe that they're suing me? I mean, all I did was punch them in the face. All I did was steal their truck and set their house on fire. Can you believe that they're mad at me and suing me? And then that person says, they had it coming. Like, it's, it's really their fault, right? It's, it's really on them. Like, I don't blame you. You had no choice but to punch them, steal their car, and burn down their house. Folks, that's not helpful. <laughs> that, that is clearly not a helpful friend, if you want to call them that. People who take our side without considering the truth and the facts are ultimately not our friends, or at least not the kind that we really, really need in our life. I don't need someone to fill me with lies, and I don't need anyone to help me justify my sin because I do that well enough by myself. I don't need that. I need someone in my life that's actually going to call out my sin and help me to see it for what it is. I need true Christian friends, those that are willing to empathize with me, but at the same time, graciously, that's key, graciously, lovingly point me in the right direction or, or fill me with wisdom that my life may go in the right direction. So we've got to be careful with the posers. The yes men. We, see, we got to be careful because we want those people in our life, right? They kind of validate us and make us feel good. Like, no, be careful. We don't need yes men in our life. Now, there is another kind of poser running around. This is actually the kind of poser we're more than likely to run into in a church circle. Are you ready? They're the legalists, the Pharisees. What I mean by that, those individuals that are buttoned up, starched up, dogmatic about right and wrong, good and bad, they're basically church bullies. They're, run, they're, they're the equivalent of church hall monitors. They're running around basically checking lists like, hmm, ah, print. No, man, that's wrong. That's wrong. They're running around giving spiritual demerits, right? And, and it's awfully like just veiled, well, Scripture says so-and-so, that is wrong. Like, it sounds very high and mighty and lofty, and they'll justify it. Well, I'm just a black and white type of person. I'm just see it as it is and call it as it is, and, and it's just right is right and wrong is wrong. And it sounds kind of right and lofty, but, folks, it's not helpful. Like, I, it, I don't benefit from someone just telling me I'm wrong if they're not willing to come alongside and help me make it right. 
See, that's a friend. Like, at one point, I can't take but so much criticism. I need someone to help me show me how to do it right. I don't need a bully in my life. I need a friend. I need someone that's going to be gracious. Someone that's not just going to be negative just for the sake of it. Or like the obstinate, contentious individual. Like, come on. Like, be gracious and loving. I mean, how do we catch more flies? With vinegar or honey? What, it, what is it from God's standpoint that leads us to repentance? I'm pretty sure Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So got to be careful. We don't need yes men. Clearly, I don't need the legalist in my hand. Be careful which one you may be, by the way. Just saying. The kind of friendships that we need are actually described in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See, Peter and John were filled with right relationships, and those right relationships in turn stirred them up and encouraged them to do the right things. And this is what it means to be Christian brothers and sisters or Christian friends to one another. We're helping each other. We're pre filling one another in order for us to walk in the works that God has prepared for each of us to walk in. So Peter and John, they're, they're able to boldly live out their faith because they're part of a loving community of Christian friends. Question, are you? Do you have Christian friends, good friends, close friends, supportive Fellow believers who are with you through thick and thin, no matter what, through the bad seasons and the, and the, and the good seasons in life. Are, are you part of a, a network, a partnership, a covenant partnership with fellow believers that you're doing life with? Because, folks, we desperately need this in our life. Can't do it by ourselves. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. We need to be filled with the right relationships. We need accountability. We need encouragement. And the fact is that this doesn't come easily, and it does not come quickly. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of practice, and a lot of patience. And it doesn't just happen by showing up to a worship service on a Sunday morning. I would say it requires showing up early to the worship service. And actually hanging out with people and shaking hands and hugging necks and getting to know people and talking and socializing before church and, and even not bolting out the door right afterwards and actually lingering and mingling a little bit and getting to know some people. And once a month we do a church lunch here after service and this is an opportunity for us to engage into relationships with one another. On top of that, we have small groups or Bible study or A-team. Not in July. We're taking July off because you have to these days. But anyway, July's off. But in August, we'll have our Bible studies kicked back. Well, it requires that time together in God's truth, learning from one another and communicating. That's how we build the friendships up with one another. And beyond that, it means inviting each other over for dinner. My kids like hot dogs and mac and cheese. And I don't like onions just to let you know ahead of time. And I don't like pickles either. Uh, sure, what else? <laughs> Okra, only fried. Have each other over for dinner. Go out to breakfast with one another. Go get coffee. Go fishing. Do whatever it is that you do. But just be around one another. I mean, me and Jamie, we do our best once or twice a month to have someone over to dinner on a Friday night. I mean, we should be doing all of that, all of us together doing that. I love what, what Peter and John do. The first thing in the story is that they go and they hang out with their friends. It's what it says. Through this experience, the first thing they do, they go to their Christian family. Guess what they didn't do? They didn't post it on Facebook. Huh. Guess what, folks? Facebook is not community, and it's show enough is not Christian community. 
Because I'm pretty sure that authentic community takes place only through actual conversation. Real community does not take place through a social media platform. It takes place face-to-face with people. And one thing I'm absolutely certain of is that if we would just give ourselves over to sharing life and spending time and investing with one another, we will experience something profound, each and every one of us. We will fill each other up with goodness. And we will begin to reap goodness in our life. We, will, we can fill each other with wisdom and grace so that our lives can go in the right direction. So... Is your life filled with right relationships? So Peter and John, their lives are filled with right relationships. The second thing is that their lives are filled with prayer. Look at verse 24. It says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So when Peter and John go to their church family and share what took place, the first thing that they all do together is that in one accord, they lift up their voices together in prayer to God. And this isn't the first time that they've done this. This is a lifestyle for the early church. It's a habit. In, chap- in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, With one accord, they devo- devoted themselves to prayer. Then in chapter 1, verse 24, it says, they prayed. In chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. The reason Peter and John were able to be bold for Jesus, the reason they were so spiritually healthy and powerful and gospel effective, was because their life was filled with prayer, both individual and personal, as well as corporate. As well as corporate. So how vital is it for us to fill our lives with prayer. Consider this. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus prayed by himself, and he prayed with his disciples. Now, if Jesus needs to pray a lot, how much more do we? But we we struggle to make this routine, right? We struggle to make prayer a priority in our life. And the reason why is because we have this really flawed way of thinking about prayer. Corey Ten Moon, Christian hero, Dutch lady who helped so many Jews escape from the Nazi Holocaust. She once asked this, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is it your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? How far can you get in your car without a steering wheel? Maybe, just maybe out of your parking lot. And if you're lucky, you won't take out your mailbox. And that's about it. You're not going any further than that. You cannot get far. You're never going to get to where you need to get to without your steering wheel. But the problem is that we treat prayer like it's a spare tire as opposed to the steering wheel that it's meant to be. Our problem is that we, we treat it that way. So when do we use our spare tire? Right, we have a flat. We have a flat. So here we pull over, we take the spare out of the trunk, and we slap it on. That's when we use prayer, typically. Like, I have a flat in my life. I just need something to get me to the service station. And, so, and we keep that spare tire on up until we get the new tire and replace it. And then guess what do, we, what do we do with the spare then? It goes back in the trunk. Well, that's not what prayer is, and that is not what prayer is for. Prayer is not something we use just to barely get us through. Prayer is how we get through. Like, it's not something we slap on just to help us get along. It's how we get along. There's a a profound difference. Prayer isn't how we limp to the service station. Prayer is us receiving the guidance and the wisdom and the power of God in order to motor down life. So many Christians were living deflated lives because we're not praying. Prayer fills us. It fills us. E.M. Bounds wrote this. Prayer makes a godly man and puts within him the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, of self-surrender, of service, and of pity. 
This is what prayer does. It, it actually places in us the mind of Christ, the character of Christ. It, it's how God, it's one of the ways through his word and through prayer, God speaks to us and it fills us. So let me ask, do you want to be spiritually healthy? Do you want to be spirit, spiritually powerful? Do you want your life to be filled with good stuff and so it can head in the right direction? Do you want to sow goodness in your life? Pray. Fill your life with prayer. Make it a daily discipline, a lifestyle where you speak with God, not speak at, but speak with God. God and connect with him and communicate with the Lord. He's a personal God. He's not some nebulous entity out there somewhere. No, he's a personal God that, that, that lowers his ear in order to listen to, to our hearts. So speak with him and seek his guidance and ask for blessing and for protection. Ask for it. But not just that. Pray with a, a kingdom mindset. I love how these folks prayed in this text. In verse 29, they actually pray for boldness. Weren't they already bold? What? That doesn't make sense, does it? Why in the world would they ask for, for boldness when they just prayed, when they just show like next level boldness? I'll tell you why. Because I, I think this is true. Usually the time that we're more, most susceptible to weakness or to spiritual attack is right after a victory. It's right after a mountaintop experience like, yay, guess what's going to come on the other side of that? All kinds of spiritual attack. Folks, for 12 months, we've been battling. How in the world are we going to buy this building? Because we've got to buy the building. And God has provided. And, and it's like, I tell you, for nine months, it was like, is this going to happen? And over the last six weeks, God has opened up blessings, and it is shocking and amazing. And there's this and this, and we got the loan. We're going to get the loan. We qualify for this. Here's the interest rate. Here's the insurance thing, which was a variable. Like, oh, my goodness, that's great. And the attorney's doing it pro bono. I mean, everything is lining up. As of two weeks ago, though, I don't know that I've experienced as much negativity and issues and trial and problems and stuff squeezing me in the last two weeks than in the last year combined. Why? We're coming out of this thing where I'm saying we just got a front row seat and seeing God do something profound and here comes the attack. So we have been bold for a year. Guess what? We need to pray for more boldness because here it comes. Here it comes. So they, we got to pray with a kingdom mindset. And I think there's something else that's healthy about that. If all we do is pray for me, 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 right? Protect me, protect me, protect me, lead me, lead me, lead me, guide me, guide me, guide me, like me, 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 bless me, bless me, bless me. If all we do is that, it, our prayers become very self-centered. So we need to pray with a kingdom mindset. God, make me bold. Help me to live out my faith. Help me to do what you want me to do. Help me to, to be faithful to you in every way. Use me, God. Give me boldness and strength and wisdom and courage to do that. All for the sake of your glory. And I tell you, if we fill our life with that kind of prayer, that kind of prayer will fill our life. If you fill your life with a prayer for the glory of God, the glory of God will fill your life. And the things of earth will dimly pass away and fade away. So we need to pray. Fill your life, your day, your week with prayer. Individual prayer. Pray without ceasing all the time. But not just that. We need to pray corporately. Like, this is the emphasis of the New Testament. God's people praying together. Look at Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. They're praying together. You actually, not that it means that it's wrong to do it, but you actually don't see believers praying by themselves so far in Acts. Every time it mentions prayer, they're praying together. That's the emphasis of the New Testament. So once a month, the third Sunday of the month, except for July, because you've got to take July off, the third Sunday of each month at 6 p.m., we open up our building and we gather here specifically just for an old school prayer meeting. And it would do my heart so good to see as many people gather for that as on a Sunday morning. Because here you're just having some guy speak to you. What's actually better is for us to get together and speak to God. 
So the third Sunday of each month, if you want for your life and for our church to head in the right direction, if you want us all to sow goodness in our life, prioritize prayer. So Peter and John, their lives are filled with right relationships. Their lives are filled with prayer. The third thing is that their lives are filled with trust. Look at how they start their prayer in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This, this prayer, verses 24 through 30, it really is not much more than a declaration of their trust in the sovereignty of God. Verses 25 and 26, they're quoting from Psalm 2, which simply affirms the sovereignty of God. What does that word mean for God, that God is sovereign? What it, what it means is that God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. What it means is that God is ultimate, that there is nothing above him, that he is superior, that he is preeminent over everything. What it means is that he alone is the creator, the sustainer, and the judge of all things. What it means is that he governs over everything without rival, and he single-handedly moves history down the path that he chooses and desires. That's what it means that God is sovereign. Nothing catches him by surprise and nothing thwarts his plans. That is who God is. He is the Lord Almighty. And this is who Peter and John and their, their other church friends, that's who they trusted. It is this sovereign God. Even in the midst of the beginnings of persecution, they trust God. They're, trust, they're trusting God with everything, including their life. Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they trust God? I mean, is God not the one who promised to send the Messiah and kept his promise? I mean, this is, they, they actually remind themselves of that truth in verse 27. They remind themselves that Jesus Christ is actually the anointed one. That Jesus Christ is the holy servant, God's holy servant. In other words, he is the son of God. He's the one that came down from heaven and he came into this earth and he's born of a, like a babe in a manger, born there, lived among us, did nothing wrong, and then men turned against him. They rebelled against him. They, they, they took up arms against God's holy one, his anointed one, and they killed him. And then God took what is the most hateful act in all of history and turned it into the most beautiful act in all of history. The greatest display of love. He took the greatest display of hate and turned it into the greatest display of love. And so Jesus, in love, goes to a cross willingly to die for you and to die for me, to give his life, to pay for our sin, that we may be spared, that we may be forgiven of our sin, that we may have hope in this life. He died for us while we were yet sinners in order to secure our future. He did that, that we may spend eternity basking in the light of the glories of God's grace. Why should we not trust such a God? I mean, if we could trust him with our soul, and if we could trust him with our eternal destiny, Folks, guess what? We can trust him in the here and now. We can trust him with everything that's going on in our life. What a difference it makes if we are filled with a profound and a deep and sincere trust that God is sovereign over everything. See, if we really are filled with a trust for that God, we can endure those bad seasons in our marriage. If we really believe that God is loving and faithful and his plans are sure and right, we can weather a financial storm. See, if we really believe that God is faithful to his will and he carries out all of his desires and his desires are good, we can actually walk through a health crisis. We can actually face religious persecution as a result of our faith in Jesus if 
we really believe that God is sovereign. There is a hope and there is a joy that can be found only in a sincere trust that God is faithful, that he is good, that he's loving, that he never leaves us nor forsake us. He's always near and he is our present help regardless of the trouble. So, do you trust him? Do you trust God? Trust with God begins here. We repent of our sins. We confess our sins to God. He loves us. And we ask for his grace. That's where trusting God begins. Trusting God begins with believing in his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross, that he died to pay our sin, and that he was raised on the third day. That's where trusting God begins. And like I said earlier, all of us have a past. All of us are walking around with all kinds of baggage. Emotional despair, brokenness, addictions, abuse. We all have a background and a history. Bad decisions, stuff we've done, stuff people have done to us. Moral failures and immoral shortcomings. We are filled with sin. And the beautiful thing is that God can take away all of that which fills us, take it away and fill us with something completely brand new and better. He can fill us with his love and with his righteousness. That's so good. The gospel is so good. So have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you given your life over to follow him? Because it's only when we make that decision that then God does this incredible, beautiful, supernatural work. He begins to change us and fill us with new things. And our life begins to go in a better or right direction. And we start to sow goodness in our life because he then starts to fill us with something better. What we're filled with really does matter. What I have here, for those of you in the back, two balloons. They look the same on the surface. They're both filled. One is filled with helium. The other one is filled with oxygen and carbon dioxide. If I let go of these balloons, will they go in the same direction? Let's find out. Clearly not. What the balloon is filled with determines where it goes, how it goes, how it carries itself. We're no different. What we are filled with will determine whether or not you rise to the heights of the abundant life that God freely offers or whether you descend and sink down into the futility and the desperation of a life mired in sin. So we have a choice. Do you want to be filled with with earthly things and sin and and fleshly desires? Do I want that to characterize me and then sink into a lesser than ideal existence? We have a choice. And all of us, regardless of our past, we can choose today what it is that we're going to be filled with. Where you're seeking after him and you're asking for his wisdom and his counsel and his guidance and you're seeking after his kingdom. Whether you actually believe that he is good and faithful and right and just and fair, patient and merciful, and that his plans are good and that you're going to walk down that path. Because if you trust God, the ground underneath your feet will be solid. So you can choose. What are you going to have your life filled with? I ask you all to respond to that question and to close your eyes and bow your heads. And the praise team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a closing song. I hope and pray that we would all choose to fill our lives the right way. And that we would rise to what it is that God desires.
What decision do you need to make this morning? Now, there may be someone in here, this room, this morning that you've never actually placed your faith in Christ. You, you've heard some stories and you, maybe you've been to church here or there, but you've never actually committed yourself and repented and given your life to Christ. If that's you, I, I ask and I encourage you, just give in over to the grace of God. Believe in Jesus, trust in him that his mercy in the cross is sufficient. I think all of us in here want everything, and I would say that God made us to want everything. The trick is that everything is found in Christ. So would you choose this morning to be filled with Christ and look for everything in him? And maybe you're here and you're realizing that your life is not filled with right relationships, not that we can't have other relationships in our life, but you need desperately Christians around you. So would you commit to pursuing that? Whether it's at this church or some other church, would you commit to surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ to help you? Maybe you realize that your life is not filled with prayer the way that it should. So would you commit today to pray without ceasing because you desperately need God's guidance and his touch and his voice in your life? What decision do you need to make this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning for your, your goodness to us and your patience and for another opportunity to know you and to come close to you and to draw near, Lord, and that you are a good Father who doesn't turn away from us, but you, Lord, you take a knee and you open up your arms and you gather us unto yourself. And I thank you for second and third and fourth chances for grace upon grace. Thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to know you through your son, Jesus, to know you by grace through faith, not by works. Thank you for your loving truth and your truthful love, that you not leave us mired and desperate and hopeless, but you seek to point us in the right direction that you don't give up on us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for the life that is found in him, where we can be saved by the name of Jesus. There is no other name. And having made that decision, Lord, may we now live in it and for the name of your son, Jesus, and bring all glory to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.